0: Good morning to you. Good morning. On March 2nd of 1965, Julie Andrews informed us that the hills are alive with the sound of music, from a doe, a deer, a female deer, to ray, a drop of golden sun. This sound of music, she told us, extended from raindrops on roses to whiskers on kittens, to bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. About 2,500 years ago, the hills of Jerusalem came alive with the sound of music as well. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to Ezra chapter 5, Ezra chapter 5, and if you're with us in the uh, Pew Bible, that should be there on page 496, 496 of the Pew Bible, Ezra chapter 5. As you turn in the Word of the Lord to Ezra 5 and 6, let's turn to the the Lord of that Word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take us this morning to sections of Scripture that perhaps we are less than familiar. We pray that from these chapters of a book that we do not often have strong ownership of, that we would understand more about your work and your workers and your worship through looking at your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God says in Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Jeshua, the son of Zodok, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethazar Bozenai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And they also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is the copy of the letter that Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethsar Bozani and his associates and governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king, that is, the king of Persia. They sent him a report to which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went out to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, And it is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Well, who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And we also asked them their names, for your information, that we might write it down, their names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt. And gold and silver and vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem, and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. And then Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building. And it is not yet... Finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Chapter 6. Then Darius the king, well, he made a search of the decree, and a search was made in Babylonian in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written a record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And let also the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem. Each to its place you shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, and Shephthar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone... Let the governors of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews who are rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, or born offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And and I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, A beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Well, that kind of sets the tone, doesn't it? Verse 12. May the God who has caused His name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make the decree, let it be done with all diligence. Verse 13. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethzar, Bozani, and their associates, well, they did with diligence what Darius the king had ordered them. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished the building by decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as was written in the book of Moses. And on the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, and all of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and for their fellow priests and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples to worship the Lord. So so both the people that returned and people that were there who separated themselves from unclean worship and became exclusive worshipers of the Lord. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, imagine for a moment the scene that has happened when we close chapter 4 and move to chapter 5. For 16 years, all construction had utterly ceased by force and with haste, we learned last week that Israel's adversaries had compelled God's people to cease and desist from building the house of God. After 16 years of neglect, you would walk to the temple site and you would see tall weeds overtaken where worship was supposed to happen. And, and there would be a palpable sense of despondency on the people of God when the faithful would look over and gaze on the forlorn site of an unfinished foundation the temple of God and so God's people what did they do for 16 years well they got on with their life they they couldn't build the house of God they were prevented from building the house of God so they went back and they were not idle they went back and they rebuilt their own homesteads because remember they had left as refugees and so they now needed to put attention onto their own homes they got so utterly engrossed in this exercise in the building of their own estates that God had to move the prophet Haggai to prophecy this. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? See, see, when they couldn't do the work of the Lord, they got busy doing other things, and then they got so engrossed in those other things that God had to raise up a prophet to say the other things are lesser things. They made their homes beautiful while God's house was in disrepair. And so God's people had forgotten those pledges they made when they when they left captivity. And they forgot the pledge to restore the temple because it had been so resoundingly defeated by the adversaries in their midst and the decree of Artaxerxes afar. It just seemed impossible, so they quit and they kind of forgot about why God had sent them in the first place. And and I want you to see that in the midst of this painful hiatus, when the government had shut them down, when local opposition had beat them up, when God's people had become preoccupied with making their own cozy little nests, And while God's house lie in utter ruin, in the midst of all that negativity, God was about to do something wonderful. God was about to do something powerful. God was about to do something that only God could do. He restarted His work. Where there was no inertia, where there was no momentum, where there was no will, He just called that thing back into service. He reinvigorated His workers. And He reinstituted worship and He revealed His marvelous ways to a watching world. That's what we're going to see in these two chapters today. In our time together, we shall so segment our looking at these two chapters. The first area we need to explore is in regards to God's work. In regards to God's work, there are some lessons we can learn from Ezra 5 and 6. And the first one is this, A. In regards to God's work, setbacks may seem to delay, but they never ultimately deny God's work setbacks may seem to delay, but you need to know they do not ultimately deny God's work. Ezra 4, last week, our sermon last week, demonstrated the dirty dozen of Satan's setbacks sent to disrupt, discourage, and hopefully destroy the work of God. But friends, all they did was delay for 16 years the work of God. They couldn't destroy it. They could just disrupt it because God's work is ultimately unthwartable. You need to remember that when there are long seasons of delay that you see. And depending on your age, 16 years may be the rest of your lifetime, and you may never see. But God has not stopped. And so don't you stop. I want you to look at some Scriptures with me for a second. I just want to anchor this point in a number of Scriptures, because we forget this easily. I'd like for you to turn to Psalm 115 and verse 3. Psalm 115 and verse 3, which is on page 648 of the Blue Pew Bible, 648, Psalm 115, verse 3. And I want to encourage you in your Bibles, why don't you write in the margin of Ezra 4, Psalm 115, verse 3, and I'll give you some other verses to write down, because I think we need to hold on to these in seasons where God's work seems delayed. Psalm 115, verse 3, says this, Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Now write down Ezekiel 12, 28. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 12, 28. Look at your neighbor in case you can't spell it. All right, Ezekiel 12, 28. Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed. Say that again. Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed. Now write down Lamentations 2, 17. Lamentations 2, 17, the Lord has done what He purposed, and He carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. Now write down Jeremiah 1.12. Jeremiah 1, 12, the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. I am watching over my word to perform it, God says. Now, I want you to turn to a verse we started with when I first became your pastor. Turn to Joshua 21.45. Remember Joshua? Let's Go to Joshua 21.45. That's on page 249 if your neighbor looks lost. Page 249, Joshua 21.45. Joshua 21:45, page 249. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. Now there was a big gap. It's 400 years of slavery. There was 40 years of wandering. But the delay was not a denial. All of God's promises, and we remember in Joshua how He meticulously worked through all of those promises that would easily be forgotten. God fulfilled. Now friends, because we have a real adversary, because we live in a fallen world, because we ourselves are not always kingdom focused, sometimes we're double-minded, God's work is going to experience setbacks. And from our standpoint, they will seem to delay, but you need to know they will never deny God's work. Because try as he might, and he tries with all of his might, day and night, Satan cannot ultimately thwart an all-powerful God. God will allow Him at times to delay, disrupt, discourage, but He does not allow Him to deny the outworking of the plan of God. So that means we don't need to be discouraged when we see God's work disrupted. We need to realize that God's train will ultimately not be derailed. This train is bound for glory. The only question is, are you on this train? B. God's work being accomplished is wedded to God's Word being heralded. You're going to see very clearly in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that God's work being accomplished is wedded to God's Word being heralded. After 16 years of delay, it was not the king's change of heart that got the work to restart according to the Word of God. The Bible tells us it was when the men of God brought the Word of God to the people of God that their heart for God grew and the work of God restarted. It started with the Word of God, not the whim of the king. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. How does chapter 5 begin? Now the prophets. Not now the king. Not now the government. Not if, oh, we just had a a senator on our side. No. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Zodak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The Word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes everything God has purposed. Uh, When the sword of the Spirit is unsheathed, the Bible teaches that people are cut to the heart. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. If the work of God is to be accomplished, the Word of God must be unleashed. And so we must be careful as a congregation. That at Calvary, for all of our days, in all of our ways, we devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Because the work of God is accomplished when the Word of God is heralded. And there's no other way to do that. Gimmicks and tricks and charismatic leaders and organization don't do the work of God. They may help the work of God. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that moves the people of God to do the work of God and never forget that. Amen? So just as the Word is the the catalyst in our passage, and it can overcome any hindrance, so too it is true, point C. God's work is accomplished through God's people, but God can aid it through anyone He wishes. So so God's work is going to be accomplished by God's people, but He can aid that work using anybody, anywhere, anytime. I want you to skip down to chapter 6, and you're going to see this in raised relief. In chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 1, then Darius the king, now is he, is he a believer? No, he's not. He's a pagan. He's a Persian pagan living in a foreign land. Then Darius the king made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, which was a, one of the other palaces, I think it was the summer palace that they would go to, the citadel that's in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king. Now was Cyrus a believer? No, he was not. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt and the place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. And let the cost be paid by me, the royal treasury. God used a pagan to finance His temple. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that's in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be restored and brought back to the temple that's in Jerusalem each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Even when Nebuchadnezzar was angry. Even when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. Even when Nebuchadnezzar took all the gold and the wealth and the articles. You know what God did not let Nebuchadnezzar do? Melt it down and make a big brooch for his wife. He just had to keep it in storage because one day God had a purpose. There was a delay, but there was not a denial. One day those artifacts were going to be needed to worship the living God. And even the pagan who hated God couldn't withstand God's plan. Now, when the present Persian potentate, Darius, heard that his predecessor, Cyrus, had authorized this, Darius not only permitted the work, the Bible says Darius promoted the work. Look again at verse 6. Now therefore, Tat and I, governor of the province beyond the river, and Shephtar, Bones and I, and your associates and the governors who are in beyond the river, keep away. Don't, don't interfere. Don't make a ruckus. Number seven, let the work on this house of God alone do not stand in the way. Let the governor of the Jews and the elder of the Jews rebuild the house of God on this site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for rebuilding. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay. Remember last time the enemy came and he came with force and haste? Now God is coming through a pagan using what? The pagan's money and it's coming fast. Without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river. So the very people that put up all these problems, well, it's their taxes they're going to help pay for the temple. God has a sense of irony, doesn't he? And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, and burnt offerings for the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day. This wasn't a one-time thing. This was until it was done. I'm going to stand behind them and help the work get done. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his son. So here's this pagan going, you know, I don't know this God, but let's cover all the bases. Let's make sure these people are praying and their God's happy. Okay? So not only did the pagan potentate offer his own coffers to fund God's work, not only did he openly ask for prayer, but God so softened Darius' heart that he even forbid any opposition whatsoever. I want you to look at verse 11. And I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, that is, if anyone tries to thwart the building of God's temple, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. He's to be homeless, and he is to be impaled on it. He's to be killed publicly on a stick. That everyone can see, and his house shall be made a dunghill. That, that kind of proves the point, right? Don't, don't interfere around here, or you will be in big trouble. God can use anybody, can't he? But he doesn't need anybody, does he? Hmm. God used the pagan king, and that brings us to the second point, and it deals we've moved from God's work to God's workers, God's workers. And the first thing we see in this passage is we must listen to God's stirring as given in His Word. How do the workers get to work? When God's Word hit their heart. We must listen to God's stirring as God's Word is given. And so it begs the question, are you in the Word daily? Do you sit under passionate, accurate Bible preaching regularly? Is this pursuit of the Word of God a priority in your life or an afterthought when you get around to it? Now we've already seen from chapter 5 how after 16 years of lethargy and apathy, God's people were moved to a single-minded devotion and kingdom perspiration when the Scriptures stirred their hearts. But they had to listen to the Scriptures for their hearts to get stirred. They had to listen. Now, how does chapter 6 in verse 15... We've already looked at chapter 5, and it was clear the Word was the catalyst. Now, go to chapter 6 in verse 14. I want you to see how Mission Impossible became Mission Accomplished. The Bible says in chapter 6 and verse 14 that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through what? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. As we feed on the Word, we are strengthened. As we put our lives against Scripture's plumb line, we see where we're crooked. And by God's grace, how we can be straightened. But we must be under the sword of the Spirit or our hearts will not get pierced. That's the catalyst. If your spiritual life is stuck in first gear, get under the Word of God. Start reading the Word of God. Start listening to good, solid biblical preaching. And you will see that God begins to stir your heart. And it will take you from first gear to second gear to overdrive. But I know very few saints that are on overdrive for Jesus who are in neutral on the Scriptures. Equally, when Goliath's shadow is blocking out the sun in your life, when the big bad wolf is huffing and puffing and threatening to rip out your stuffing, we as God's workers must remember, B, B is this, we must not let the mere threat of opposition keep us from spirit-prompted action. We must not let the mere threat of opposition keep us from spirit-prompted action. I want you to look at chapter 5 and verse 3. The Bible says, At the time of Tatnai, the governor of the province, beyond the river, and Shethar Bonzenai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? Up till now, the government had been a roadblock. And so when the government inspector came, when the governor came, when all of his cronies came, when the chief of police came, it wasn't a good day. You remember in Ghostbusters when that guy from the EPA came? <laughs> and shut down the thing with the cop and the, and, and the guy from the power department. <laughs> you remember Ghostbusters, 1984. You're with me there, okay? It wasn't a good day. The government came and they didn't know what they were doing and it was going to be a problem. That's what's happening here. And so the people of God have to go, oh no, we just got the word started, we just got our hearts stirred, we're just back in the game, and now the same threats are going to happen and we're going to have to shut down again. They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? That was meant to intimidate, wasn't it? Who's your pastor and who's the head of your building committee? Who are your elders? Who's your treasurer? And who else can we get in trouble? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And those government officials this time did not stop them, the Bible says, until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned. So the functionary said, I don't think you're doing what you should be doing, but I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to see what my boss says. But last time, they were ready to stop him. But if the workers would have quit when the threat of opposition came, that temple wouldn't have been rebuilt. There's going to be lots of threats, and not all of them equal an actual attack. And if every time we get scared, we stop, we'll never do the work of God in our generation. It would have been so easy for God's people to fearfully stop before they were ever forced to do so. But you need to understand the difference between a threat and an attack. A threat and an attack. Sadly, God's people often let... The threat of opposition keep us from starting something for the Lord or persevering in something we know He's told us to do. And that is as tragic as it is utterly unbiblical. But boy, it's common. Boy, it's common. There will always be opposition to God's work, which is why we must pray fervently and we must persevere diligently. Or we will cease God's work entirely, won't we? That's how it works. Okay, equally, point C. We must see ourselves... As God's servants. We must see ourselves. How do you view yourself? These people saw themselves as God's servants committed to His work and not their own agenda. We must see ourselves as God's servants committed to His work, not our own agendas. For 16 years, God's people were more interested in upgrading their homesteads than rebuilding the house of God. And what changed? Well, their perspective on their purpose. That's what changed. When they were asked this time, they had an answer. And the answer was, we are the servants of God. I want you to look again at Ezra 5.11. And when the government came huffing and puffing and threatened to rip out their stuffing, the people said, we are the servants of God. That was their primary allegiance. That was their primary thought of who they are. We're not a collection of people that get along and sing songs. We are the servants of God, of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Friends, you can either be an on-mission Christian, or you can be a self-centered one. Those are your options. You can be an on-mission Christian, or you can be a self-centered one. You can seek first Jesus' kingdom and His righteousness, or you can pursue what seems best to you. You get to make that choice. But you know, Jesus is quite clear. You cannot serve two masters. For the double-minded man, James says, is unstable. In all his ways. One foot in God's world and one foot in your world will leave you unstable and about to fall. 1 Corinthians 15.58 1 Corinthians 15.58 speaks of a man who is not double-minded. 1 Corinthians 15.58 You might want to write it in your Bibles. It's a great verse. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You can build a wonderful company and some other fool will destroy it. You can work for a wonderful company and the guy who's your boss will destroy it. (laughs) Some shareholder from somewhere else will take it over and stop making whatever. Whatever your life's work is, you can build a beautiful house and a beautiful garden and your son can take it over and never mow that yard again. But you know whatever you build to the Lord is not in vain. It has eternal significance. Remember that when you think about what am I going to put my entire primary purpose in. Not that the other things don't matter, but they matter lesser. So which saints are you? Which agenda is really your priority? Uh, what uh, will your life and your legacy look like if you continue in the trajectory that you're heading in this morning? If you just keep doing what you were doing this week, this month, this year, what will be the legacy of your life? Will the kingdom of God be built? Will you be an instrumental cause for the glory of God or will you be an incidental bump in the history of God's story? What legacy do you want to leave? Which brings us to point D. We must see ourselves and our history with humility and understand that disobedience has consequences. D. We must see ourselves and our history with humility and understand that disobedience has consequences. Look at verse 12 of Ezra 5. Ezra 5, 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. Hey friend, you and I are not the be-all and end-all of the story. I am a flower quickly fading. Here today and gone tomorrow, I'm a wave tossed in the ocean, I'm a vapor in the wind. And yet, the decisions that I make regarding serving the Lord today will impact tomorrow, won't they? It will impact my kids. It will impact my community. It will impact my country. I can either be one who puts my hand to the plow and does not look back, or I can sit on the sidelines and be mainly interested in my own affairs. As we rightly see ourselves as the King's servants, We must interact not just with God in humility, but we also have to interact with the wider world around us with that same kind of humility. And that brings us to letter E. Letter E. We must interact with the wider world around us with a resoluteness to God's purposes and a respect for those over us. We have to have a resoluteness to God's purposes when we interact with the wider world, but we also have to have a biblical respect to those in authority over us in this world. How did the Israelites answer the government inquiry? They didn't speak with haughtiness and naughtiness. They answered the authorities respectfully, with tact, but they did not allow the discourse to take them off track of what God had told them to do. I want you to look at verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, that's a very humble and tactful way of saying we'd like you to think the way we're thinking, let a search be made in the royal archives in Babylon. They knew they were right. They knew they had right on their side, but they weren't haughty about it. To see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in the matter. Very tactful, wasn't it? Very gracious, was it? Very humble, was Still firm, still true, but not a jerk. Have you met Christians that are truthful, but jerks? Not very effective, is it? Hmm. They could have said we are right look at your own records you dim-witted government functionary they could have probably wouldn't have gotten the answer they wanted instead they knew proverbs sixteen twenty-four. you might want to write it down if you struggle with this proverbs sixteen twenty-four: gracious words are like a honeycomb sweetness to the soul and health to the body new jersey is not known for gracious words if you interact with the checker at the store we had a man at costco and he's always a frowny man at costco we won't name him and, and I saw he had a pin and he had a Navy pin and I talked to him and said, Oh, you were in the Navy. And we started talking, and I'd been in the Marines. At the end, he shook my hand. The man who had never smiled, he had a record, world record, never smile. Have those interactions where you're the one customer. They go, I like that guy. And one day when they go, Why are you different? you tell them it's Jesus. Don't miss an opportunity. We live in one of the greatest settings where graciousness stands out, because New Jersey could use a little more graciousness. Amen? God has put you in a wonderful opportunity to stand out for Jesus. These people knew Proverbs 15.1 that a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. They spoke with respect to the government. They spoke with a resoluteness to God and a respect to those around them. So, so far we've examined God's work and God's worker, and that brings us to section 3. Section 3 in regard to God's ways. God's ways. God's ways. The first thing we see is that God knows how to raise up preachers and leaders to galvanize His people to accomplish His ends even in a discouraging wider world. God knows how to raise up preachers and leaders to galvanize His people to accomplish kingdom ends even in a discouraging wider world. In our passage, God raised up the prophets. The Bible says He raised up Haggai and Zechariah to rekindle the people's hearts. The Bible says that God raised up Zerubbabel and Joshua to organize God's work. God raised up Tatnai the governor to inquire, but this time not forbid God's work, and then God raised up Darius, not just to permit the work, but to promote the work of God. So you should never be discouraged in God's work. Remember the setting of our story. God's people could have been utterly despondent and discouraged because there had been 16 years of cessation. There had been many years of sharp opposition. Before that, there were 70 years of captivity. Before that, there was the utter destruction of everything they knew. These people could have been depressed to the nth degree. And it would have made sense if you only looked at history and not God. But just because our past is dark does not mean our future is not bright if we would remember God in the present. That's the difference. Just because your past is dark doesn't mean your future isn't bright if you will look to God in the present. No matter how bad it seems, we must always remember that God knows how to raise up preachers and leaders to galvanize His people, to accomplish His ends, even in a discouraging wider world. Hey friends, we're going to go back to nursery school. Remember Chicken Little? <laughs> Let's let Chicken Little run around saying, the sky is falling, the sky's is falling. Too many Christians say that let's instead be like the little red hen. Do you remember her? Uh, The little red hen, she she planted those seeds, she cut the wheat, and she baked the bread. And, and, And don't you worry if the lazy dog and the sleepy cat and the noisy duck say, not I. Don't you worry if the guy next to you won't serve Jesus. You serve Jesus. Don't you worry if the news tells you the sky is falling. The good news is the king is coming. Listen to the voice of truth, or you'll be paralyzed by the sea of lies. God can do a lot with a little. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, starts with the most meager of mustard seeds, the smallest seed in that world, in that part of the world. There was nothing less impressive than the mustard seed. And yet Jesus says, by the power of God, the mustard seed grows up to be such a tree that all the birds of the air find shade and rest and safety. Just as God knows how to raise up preachers and leaders, so too it is true, B, that God knows how to move the heart in those in positions of authority to permit God's work to prosper. God knows how to move the heart of those in positions of authority to allow God's work to prosper. Just as God moved Cyrus's heart in the past and now He moves Darius's heart in our passage there. So God moved the Emperor Constantine in 3.13 to issue the Edict of Toleration so that Christian persecution ended and began to flourish. When for a couple hundred years Christians were hunted and haunted and persecuted and worshipped in catacombs. Hey friends, God moved the heart of Frederick III of Saxony to protect Martin Luther from extermination during the Reformation. God can move the hearts of people. And so we must pray for the hearts of those in authority over us that we might be permitted to be diligent in the work God is doing amongst us. Right? Pray that we would have the kind of authority, figures, who allow us to get on with the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean we agree with every decision they make, every tax they make, every rule they make, but that they would allow us to be able to continue to move forward the work of God. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but Jesus' kingdom is unshakable. See, God knows how to move the heart of the lost so that God's people can plunder the Egyptians in achieving His purposes. This is a really amazing thing about God. That God knows how to move the heart of the lost so that God's people can plunder the Egyptians in achieving His purposes. I want you to look at Ezra 6.8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue. The tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, or burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let all that be given to them day by day without fail. If you feel like you've heard this before, in Exodus 12.36, the Bible tells us, Exodus 12.36, you can write it down next to Ezra 6.8, Exodus 12.36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Friends, God knows how to move the hearts of those with assets to put those tools to use for the glory of God. Did you know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Did you know that God is fully capable of moving hearts to place needed possessions in positions where His work will advance? Did you know that often we have not? Let's try that again. If God has everything and He has the ability to change the disposition to put those things that we need, not because we want it, not because we want the Taj Mahal, not because we want it fancy, but because this is what God is actually wanting us to do. If, If we need it, we often have not because we yeah, we need to be a praying church because we have a listening God who moves when His people pray. Alright, so far we've surveyed God's work, we've surveyed God's workers, and we've surveyed God's ways. I want to conclude our time together with this God's worship. God's worship. God's worship. In regards to God's worship, we see this. Our worship is to be joyous. Our worship is to be joyous. Our worship is to be joyous. Look at Ezra 6.16 and then we'll skip down to verse 22. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with what? With forced drudgery because it was Sunday and somebody would know if I wasn't there if I didn't come because they sit next to me and... No, they did it with joy. Verse 22. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with... Read it. Joy. This is not a very participatory church. Uh, For the Lord made them joyful. The Lord made them... Joy. joy isn't something we bring. I need to be joyful today or people won't think I love Jesus enough. Or. Joy isn't something we manufacture. It's something we allow God to do through us and in us and with us. And in spite of us, Hmm. The Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that the king aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Friends, worship ought to be joyous, not arduous. It ought to be something we do because our hearts are filled with joy. It, 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 because our cup runneth over, our joy ought to spilleth out when we worship. The scriptures say. Though we do not see Him now, we believe in Him. And we we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our soul. Remember that. Remember that. Worship isn't listening to a great performance. Worship is reverence and jubilance expressed personally and enthusiastically as an offering to our precious, gracious Jesus. Jesus. Say that again. Worship is not a performance. I don't really care if you like the music. We're not here as a concert at the Met. We're here to worship Jesus. Worship isn't listening to a great performance. Worship is reverence and jubilance expressed personally and enthusiastically as an offering to our gracious and great Jesus. That's worship. And anything else is music. Now, Jesus desires that we worship with joy. Jesus deserves that we worship with joy. The question is, do we worship with joy? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Do you sing because it's Sunday? Or do you sing because you have a song that came from Jesus that you want to give back to Jesus this day? Our worship is to be joyful and our worship is to be biblical be our worship is to be biblical our worship is to be biblical the bible says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge i've gone to some congregations they're full of joy they're not full of much else they're not full of bible (laughs) they're not full of truth but boy are they joyous in our joyful worship we ought to be guided by the bible and not our personal preferences or our traditions or our emotions look at chapter 6 and verse 18 And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions. There was biblical order for the service of God as Jerusalem as it was written in the book of Moses. Their worship was joyous, yes it was, but it was also biblical. There was order and structure biblically and there was everything done according to how God had laid it out in His Word. And so true worship, Jesus says, is done in spirit and in truth. You can fall off the horse on the left or the right side. You can go to the frozen chosen that have the good words <laughs> and the cold hearts. <laughs> and you can go to the crazy mazy church <laughs> where everybody's excited and nobody knows the Bible. But we're excited about the God we don't know. Woo! Look, it's not Ric Flair worship. It's worshiping in spirit and in truth. He was a wrestler. You can Google him. He would say woo anyway. Um, our worship is to be done in faith. That's point C. Our worship is to be done in faith. Verse seventeen. They offered at the dedication of this house of God one hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering, here it is for the for all Israel. Now, who did they offer these sin offering for? All Israel. So they offered twelve goats according to what the number of the tribes of Israel. They offered twelve goats. Great. Now, were all the tribes there? No, no. No, it was mainly just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and some of the Levites. If you go back for a second, go back to Ezra 1-5, and you tell me who came back. Ezra 1-5. Ezra 1-5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of which tribes? Judah and Benjamin. And then some also some of the priests of the... That's three tribes. And everyone whose spirit of God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that was in Jerusalem. Only 50,000 of the millions came. And really only three tribes. And only part of three tribes. Now, I want you to flip to Ezra 4.1. Ezra 4.1. It's harder for me to know when you have turned there if you have an electronic Bible, but some of you help me out. Ezra 4.1. Now, when the adversaries of which tribes? Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles... So who were the returned exiles? They were mainly... Judah and Benjamin. Okay. So here's Judah and Benjamin, along with some Levites, three tribes. And they took 12 goats, symbolizing all of Israel, all 12 tribes. Friends, they were in faith worshiping, weren't they? That one day, God would restore Israel to its glory. That one day, these 10 other tribes would return and worship God. And so they made an atonement offering for folks who weren't even there. We do the same thing every time we take the Lord's Supper, don't we? In faith, the Bible says, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He... Because we believe He's coming. In faith, we take that cup. Now, our worship must be joyful. It must be biblical. It must be faithful. And sometimes point D is true as well. Point D. Our worship may not always be as grandiose as it once was. But if it is sacrificial and heartfelt, God is pleased nonetheless. Our worship may not always be as grandiose as it once was, but if it is sacrificial and heartfelt, God is pleased nonetheless. Look at verse 17. And they offered at the dedication of this house 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes. Okay, that seems like a lot. 100, 200, 400. Now, I want you to turn for just a second to 1 Kings 8.63. 1 Kings 8.63. That's on page 367. 367, 1 Kings 8.63. When the original temple was constructed and Solomon was dedicating, how many were slaughtered? 1 Kings 8.63, page 367. Solomon offered as a peace offering to the Lord 22,000 oxen. 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. Big difference between 100 and 120,000. Hey friends, i got to tell you, maybe last year the choir was fuller. Maybe last year you had a choir. Uh, Maybe 20 years ago we had a singing Christmas tree. Uh, Maybe there was a time when we had three services. Uh, But the point of our worship is not that we are grandiose, or as grandiose as we once were, or as grandiose as this other church might be. If our worship is sacrificial and heartfelt, the Lord is pleased. The Lord is pleased. I want you to remember that Solomon's grand dedication, okay, wow, 120,000 sheep, wow. Well, that grandiose spectacle degenerated into a long slide into the gutter over many generations, didn't it? And it led to a painful captivity where there was no worship, didn't it? Because friends, all that glitters isn't always gold. And, And sometimes that which looks grandiose to us actually looks grotesque to God. You and I need to worship in spirit and in truth and we get to let God determine the number of singers present, the number of souls saved, the number of seats filled. That's His job. We just need to bring a right heart every Sunday as an offering to Jesus. Because point E is true, our last point. You can smell lunch already. Point E. Our worship is for those of us who are seeking to honor the Lord. The whole point of worship is to honor the Lord. Our worship is for those who are seeking to honor the Lord. Look at verse 21 of chapter 6 very closely. It was eaten, so this Passover feast, okay? The Passover feast was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from the exile. That's 50,000 and also, and also, and also by everyone who joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord God of Israel. Friends, that means the returning remnant whose parents were unfaithful, although well, that returning remnant was worshiping. Praise God. But it also means there were others who came later, who came from the surrounding area, who heard about the one true God, and they separated themselves from the syncretistic Samaritans, and they worshiped the one true God exclusively as Scripture demanded. Did you know that God is building a people? He's building a people with Jew and Gentile and male and female and rich and poor and Chinese and Indian and African and Irish and even Norwegian. Did you know that our background doesn't matter? Because our past does not determine our future. It is what we do with Jesus in the present that determines our future. You see, Jesus is Lord. The question is, is He your Lord? The Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus saves, but have you asked Him to save you? I hope you hear the sound of music joyous, raucous, jubilant, vibrant. God is setting a table for a great wedding banquet for His glorious Son. And the Bible says, all are invited. The Bible also says few take up the invitation. Have you asked Jesus to be your savior? Johnny Cash used to sing a song, This train is bound for glory, nobody rides it but the righteous and holy. This train is a free train, everybody rides. In Jesus name. Get on board. Get on board. Get on board. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that we can turn to books of the Bible that we can hardly spell, that we are not familiar with, and we can see that they crackle with truth and resonance and relevance. We don't have to try to be relevant. We just have to proclaim Your Scriptures, and they are relevant, because Your Word is truth. We pray, Lord Jesus, today, as You're encouraging us to not miss out, in the present, so that we have a future. That we might be a kind of people that, that do something in the now that others that come behind us would find shelter just as that mustard seed. It might start very small. We might not have much to offer at all. But, but, but through Jesus, you, Christ in us, You are our hope and glory. Lord, if there's someone here today that knows about Jesus... That this is a mental ascent truth, but it is not a personal reality. I think of Nicodemus, who was the teacher of the law in John chapter 3. He was a Pharisee, which means he outdid everyone in his actions. And he was, a sad, he was on the Sanhedrin, which meant that even the Sadducees who had political authority thought that he was a, a righteous and, and God-fearing man. And so, here's this man. The teacher of the law, Scripture says. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, try harder, work better, think more, know the Scriptures better. He says, you must be born again. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's ready to make Jesus their Savior, would you you work in their heart? Would you stir in their heart? If you're here today and and, and you understand that the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, that you're a sinner, that you you can't fix that, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Not fire insurance, not religion, but your God. God and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, proving once and for all that Jesus and Jesus alone has authority and power over sin and death and hell itself, then I'd like to pray with you, and you can pray in the quietness of your heart. You can pray with me if you want to come to Jesus. It can be expressed like this. It's not a magical incantation. It's the sincere desire of your heart today. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And so I put my faith in Jesus, I give my life to Jesus. Would you turn me around? Would you regenerate me? Would you redirect me? Would you reorient me? Would you make me an object of your glory that I might tell your story? Would you do that for me? Amen and amen.